Hello everyone. After a very long time away, I'm very pleased to announce that B.O.B. is back for season two. To kick things off, I'll be presenting the podcast in both video and audio formats. The first guest for this season will be Michelle Cannell, a formidable CEO of her very own investment firm, Porsche Capital Management, that is located in Dallas, Texas. I had the opportunity to take a course taught by Michelle back in my undergrad days, and it was a very absolute blast catching up and talking about life, time management, and a book coming out very soon. Tune into this exciting episode and get ready for another season of B.O.B. Yeah, I'll get started. So today's episode is more of a trim down version, if you will. So what I'm going to be doing is that for every person or for every person who comes onto my podcast, I'll be taking a more lean approach in terms of, you know, I'm sure everybody can look at, you know, LinkedIn profiles, pages, and kind of get a better understanding of what people do in the business side. So I will ask like a couple of questions that the data, which I have from the last a conversation as well but i'm more interested in like what people are doing in their off time and i feel like that should be given more focus because more often or less the things that we do in our career seep into our free time as well so that's why i wanted to talk today about your book i understand that you're uh writing a book um congratulations mm-hmm. on that that's like a pretty big um ordeal i keep telling myself i should be writing a book sometime but it's just you have to s- literally sit down in front of a blank screen and you have to start writing. So my first question. Yeah, you have, uh, you have too, you have too many things that you're doing currently. So yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 And every time I see something, you know, I'm like, Oh, I need to try it. And then, you know, it's, it's the balance. The balance I'm learning is very, um, it's very key. Having like an agenda, I guess also helps, but yeah, I, that's what I wanted to kind of delve into because writing a book is, it's something that everybody says, let's do it. But no one is able to put down the time because like you said, there's so many things that are going on. So the first question I have for you is what inspired you to write it? Uh, first of all, what is the title? Um, what is it? What is the draft or what's the idea about? And then tell me about like how you came up with the notion to write um, this book. Oh, it, as you probably remember in class, I told a lot of stories to kind of break the monotony and the boredom of teaching finance because everybody's eyes glaze over. Usually even finance majors with the uh, mechanics of finance. So I would try to tie it to my experiences uh, working in a mutual fund and with a private equity firm in Chicago and trying to make it interesting. And I used to always say, well, I probably should just write a book of all these stories. And one of the students in uh, the fund management classes at UT Dallas, a young woman from India came up with the title and she basically said, hey, hey, professor, I have the title for you. I'm like, okay, what is it? And uh, unless someone tells me I can't keep it, uh, yeah, the name of the book is I've Seen Some Shit. And it was nuts because I have, I've seen a, I've seen a lot of stuff that 
most people would go, oh, really? I think I kind of say that my life has kind of been like a woman who experienced Wolf of Wall Street in the 90s and the early 2000s, especially. So obviously there'll be ampersands, et cetera, around the expletive, but that is the name of the book. And the purpose of the book is to help uh, people, uh, but more specifically females and minorities, uh, build wealth, get a handle on their finances and investments. Uh, especially women are horrible at it, but at the same time, uh, tell stories at the beginning, the end of every chapter that will tie to the lessons or the subject matter of the chapters. Like uh, one of the chapters is the title of it is the financial advisor, the job title that means little or nothing because it doesn't mean anything. Sean, anybody can be an advisor. Anybody. You don't need any background. And I, I give some different instances of that. Like the man who baked my wedding cake, his bakery went under. And six months later, I got a phone call saying, I want to handle your investments. And I'm like, are you the pastry chef that handled my my cake? And he's like, yeah, but I, I had to close down. So now... Now I'm managing people's investments. So there's a lot of things that people need to ask before they uh, hire an advisor or handle their investments. Another chapter is how to take on more risk and be comfortable with risk. Uh, Right now I'm working on a case of insurance fraud for um, a newspaper columnist for somebody he knows. And so I've added that chapter as well, uh, financial services fraud outside of investments and how people can uh, be aware of that for themselves or their relatives and not be taken advantage of. That's actually uh, really interesting. It seems like you do have a lot to talk about. And I I really like the title. That's definitely an attention grabber. Um, I think everybody needs one of those. So. Yeah, no, of course. And I mean, I think I'm sure, do you have like a release date planned? Um, I understand you've been working on a couple of drafts. So, I mean, that's really good progress, but do you have like a release date in mind? Uh, well, the process for getting a book published, I don't think people realize, I know I didn't, is, is it's pretty involved. So I, on the second draft or a version of my book proposal, uh, and that's where you provide some chapters, you give an outline, you give your target audience, you know, how you're going to market it, et cetera. And then you sell that or you get a literary agent to pick up your idea. And then they take that idea and they sell that to publishers because it has become more and more expensive to print books, number one. Number two, a lot of people don't read books, whether they're, a lot of people don't read hardbound books, but a lot of people just don't read in general. I mean, to get somebody to read an article of more than a couple pages is tough. So you really have to get somebody who's going to believe that you are going to be able to sell 20 to 30,000 books. And if you can't show them that, then they're probably not going to pick up your idea and your proposal 
And then your only other option is self-publishing. I want a publisher. So that's the, that's the goal. So I have I will be starting to sell or find a literary agent. I have a few that are interested in New York, hopefully in the next month or so. And I'm I I hope next year. I hope I will have a release release date by uh, the end of the first half of the year. That's the goal. That still may be a little bit um, aggressive. We'll see. But that that's the goal. So now that the proposal's done, I'll continue to write out the chapters, et cetera. But uh, um, it's a full-time job and I have my own firm at the same time. So um, it sounds romantic and wonderful. I'm gonna write a book, but it takes a lot. To, it's a grind. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's definitely, especially someone um, at your stage of your career where, like you said, you have your own firm. You also continue to teach at um, UTD. Is that correct? Or no, I no longer teach at UTD. Oh, okay. So, um, which is fine. Uh, I taught for almost five years there, and I taught the CFA uh, in Texas at several universities, including. SMU, TCU, and Rice for 10 years. So I think I've done my stint and um, it's getting just harder to, less people are enrolling in classes because yeah, school is so expensive. So um, maybe one day I'll return back to it, but uh, I've done, I think I've done my uh, fair share for now. It's, and teaching, it takes a lot of time if you're going to do it well too. Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. I still remember the class that was like, it feels like forever ago. I think back in 2018, um, that was, <laughs> it takes you all the way back. <laughs> I know. I feel like that. It's really not that long ago, but it feels, it maybe, feels it's forever. Because, maybe it's because of the pandemic. Maybe that's it. But yeah, yeah, I think the pandemic took whatever two years, I think from 2020, at least to 21. Uh, till the end of it and just like stretched it out completely which uh -huh. um which makes me feel older for some reason but um yeah no uh back to that class that was a very impactful class and good uh one thing that i did want to point out was that um going actually back to one of the chapters in your book you mentioned the pastry chef right who was talking about investments and it seems like Nowadays, a lot of people, I think probably because of the pandemic, a lot of people are paying more attention to investing, whether it is to make quick, easy money, perhaps like a college graduate would like to invest in another meme stock. I'm mm -hmm. sure um, the people who are on Reddit out there will uh, attest to that somewhat. And then you have the people who are working, right? And they're putting away, you know, in their 401k, they may be investing in mutual funds and maybe have some stock portfolios as well. So I was just curious because we've seen a lot of ups and downs, especially in the stock market. And I know you cover, you must be uh, looking at that information a lot of the time, but what would you say is like the number one reason, and this is a very broad question on purpose, but what would you say is the number one reason people make, when I say bad investments, meaning they either suffer a loss not related to the market or maybe they are inexperienced but what is like the number one reason people kind of stumble throughout investing and it could be from anywhere from people who may be inexperienced or like college graduates or people who are 
perhaps ex as experienced as yourself and are still making some mistakes here and there. But the idea is to gather some financial advice in terms of, you know, making sure your money is safe and what are some like common mistakes people make um, in a roundabout way? I talk about this in the book. I think what I learned since I got my CFA in 1998 is protect the downside. The less you lose, the less you need to gain back. Uh, for instance, uh, I think before the last three trading days, because the markets bounced back at this point, it's this is right. Friday, Friday, it's September 9th. Um, the market was down 17, 18%. Okay. And once you get past about 20, 25%, you have to gain back or you have to make back more than you've lost. So if you've lost 25%, I believe the statistic is, then you have to gain back 33% to get to where you were to ground zero before you lost that 25%. And it gets worse the more you lose. And I don't think a lot of people understand that math, like if you lose 50% in the market, and we've had a lot of technology stocks this year that have, uh, I think the NASDAQ at one point this year, I know a lot of technology and mutual funds are down 40% year to date. So a lot of them have to gain back close to 100% more than they've lost. So if you've lost 50%, you've got to gain back 100%. And that's really hard to do. That's going to take you a lot of time. And it's going to take you longer to dig out than it is if you lose less, if that makes sense. So the name of the game, I know it's boring for a lot of people, but people, I've had people, new clients that have come to me and said, I just don't want to lose a lot of money. You know, I, I want anything else for them is speculation and gambling into like meme stocks, et cetera. Um, sorry, I agree. So unless you can look at an investment and that includes a mutual fund or private investments and gauge how much you're going to lose, you're going to have a problem. So as I taught you in class, if you remember, we figure out the upside that you're going to make on a stock or investment, and then we figure out the downside. So unless you can say that your, your upside is a lot more than you could potentially lose, you don't want to go into that particular investment. So for instance, this year, for this year, I have clients that are down 0%. Okay. That's pretty good. It's extremely good. Uh, Cause I've, I've looked at a lot of pension plans, including, some large banks in the South and they're down as much as the market because they're investing in funds that pretty much replicate the S and P or the NASDAQ. Uh, so I'm down zero to 6% from my clients. It's going to be a lot easier for me to climb out of that than have to gain back 18%. So it's buying things when they're undervalued, right? And it's selling things when they're overvalued. Sounds easy, not necessarily the case, but I think that's something that people need to keep in mind. We'd made so much money last year on technology stocks 
we had to know even before Ukraine happened, even before the pandemic happened uh, a couple of years ago, it was the same thing. Things were so expensive in the market. Take some money off the table. Um, uh, compared to June, everybody was afraid of the market. And that's when I was buying. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do it when everybody's like, oh, this is bad. It's, you know, it's, it's I'm not buying anything. But you look at if, if it's a totally negative feeling or sentiment in the market, that's when you buy. I mean, that's the call of being a contrarian. And I also look at flows at that particular point, the bottom of the market in June this year, most mutual funds had the lowest percent of stocks that they'd had in years. And I'm like, well, it must be time to buy because not only is the you know, uh, amateur sitting on the sidelines, but the professional is. So I think that's where people make their mistakes is doing, you know, doing the opposite, going with the flow and, you know, everybody jumping in at the same time and jumping out at the same time. Those are the things that are going to hurt you over time versus if you uh, take uh, a sentiment or if you take a strategy, like I just said, you're going to make more than the market over time and you're going to lose a lot less. So that that's the name of the game. I know that may not be sexy enough if you're a male and you're 30 years old and that's fine. You know, take some of that money and, you know, speculate with it if you want to, but understand what you can lose and be able to tell yourself why it'll lose that. That's why I'll never buy cryptocurrency. I'll buy fintech because I can figure out the downside on that. But and I'll buy private equity and venture capital. I'll buy firms that are are investing in fintech, et cetera. But if I can't find the bottom of the pool, I'm not going to jump in. And if I can't ex if I can't explain to a client why I lost the money, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna invest. So that's actually pretty interesting. Uh, I like the pool analogy. I think a lot of the times we're so caught up that to use the meme stop as, stock as an example, I remember during that time, I think that entire weekend, weekend, Reddit, and a lot of the news channels were covering that event. I think even Netflix at one point had already cast, I think one of the one of the recurring uh, actors in Netflix films in like a film about GameStop. So it was like such a huge Did thing they? that rocketed. Yeah, they did. Um, I'm they, must sure. have, they, must, they must have pulled it uh, when they realized uh, what was going on behind it. Because I, I, I have not seen it. Um, by the way, you know, you probably have seen recently that GameStop has, I believe, pre-announced that they are not going to make their earnings again. And they have some big issues internally. Um, I hate to say this, but I didn't like it before and I I didn't like it when I was involved with the CFA research challenge before the pandemic we had to review GameStop okay and and talk to their management team um the basics were they were selling a lot in bricks and mortar and they didn't have the ability to um uh, what's the word I'm looking for Take the gaming into your uh, 
into your phone or to, into an iPad, uh, download it as quickly as some of their competitors. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So again, why was GameStop worth that kind of money just because the hedge funds were shorting it? Okay, that may be true, but you better be quick, quicker than the hedge funds and you better be smarter than the hedge funds. And I'm saying this as somebody who's worked at a firm that had hedge funds. And by the way, I invest in long, short hedge funds uh, for my clients. And that's how I protected my clients this year. Um, you've got to be really smart to short, really smart. And you have to really understand by both sides of the trade. So if you're not a professional, yes, I sound old. Yes, I sound old fashioned. Okay. But I will talk to anybody out there. If you want to lose your money, that's fine. But if you want to sit on the other side of the table for a foundation or a charity and say, Hey, I bet the farm on GameStop or on cryptocurrency and I lost X and they're like, okay, why'd you lose it? And by the way, we still have to distribute, you know, 5% of our corpus every year. That's what foundations have to do. They have to distribute X percent every year to retain their status as a foundation and nonprofit. If I don't have the funds to do that, then they will lose their status. They will no longer exist as a foundation. The type of investing where you're an institutional investor is very different versus being a speculator and somebody who's 30 to a 40-year-old person who does not have the responsibility. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. Go to it. But what people do on the institutional side, very different. But if you want to build wealth over time, follow my principles. That does not mean I'm old fashioned. I also use the same concepts with real estate. Uh, for instance, I've been investing for my clients for multifamily for the last four years throughout the South. We've done very well. I've invested with infrastructure, building cell phone towers for 5G through specifically the South and also doing a lot in private equity and a lot in venture capital this year because there's some great opportunities and we'll probably make in some of those investments 30% or more a year per annum on a risk-adjusted basis, a lot lower than a meme stock. No, that sounds that's that was a very well thought out answer. And I think I think that's the point though, right? Because like if you look at the meme stock, it's uh it was started with I say quote unquote good intentions. I personally never was in the craze. I I had a lot of fun looking at it though. I mean it was pretty it was pretty interesting to see uh most of the Redditors saying down with the hedge funds and you know, I, make I, them pay, I, you know. Yeah, I, I understand it. There are a lot of there's a lot of money sloshing around in the business. There's a lot of ego sloshing around in the business. That is true, yeah. And there's a lot of nefarious money as well. Um, so I understand that sentiment, I do. But just be understand that those people probably have access to information that you don't as an individual investor. I mean, I'm a small firm. I pay a lot for uh, research every month because there's no way that I can know everything. So I have to look at a lot before I make my decisions 
And if you're an individual, it's it's hard for an institution and a mutual fund to beat the market. For an individual to beat the market, I think you'd have to be very arrogant to think that you can. Um, and I know that my time will come as, as well. You know, that's why I want to lose less over time because there are periods where all of us will lose money and will underperform the market, but I just want to do it less. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair point. I mean, a lot of the times I think the arrogance comment was pretty interesting because you're, when this subreddit was being reported, Wall Street Bets, it was supposed, I don't know if it was a satire or not, but like most of the Redditors are like, yeah, invest in this. I invested like $20,000. And like when you said arrogance, exactly. I mean, people will literally say, I just put in my entire savings, 30K into GameStop, AMC, Silver. It was very, it was show very me. crazy. Yeah, show I know. Me. Oh, show me, show me the proof. I mean, a lot of people can say things, but unless you can stand behind your performance i'm probably going to take that sort of especially yeah probably with a lot more because um you don't see professionals acting like that and unless and if you are you have to have uh performance numbers usually audited behind you or have the records to be able to show that or else you can't make those claims yeah and um, I think that's uh, that speaks more to uh, your point and the point that I was also kind of uh, traveling <laughs> along is that professionals, right? When we say professionals, we're talking about, you know, your usual stockbrokers, investment bankers, analysts that work on Wall Street. And I guess I guess the most interesting thing about this entire thing was that because we're talking about it, was that people who are on Reddit I guess there was only one person, I'm forgetting his name, but there was one person who really did his research before all the craze. He um, had shorted, um, he had basically tried to go against the hedge fund analysts on GameStop. And he had a very genuine reasoning. He was actually interviewed a couple of times and he seems legit, right? But a majority of the people, right? It is very easy to kind of get that sense that you know something about investments, but you actually don't and you're just following along a meme. So even though, and I'm going back to your answer earlier, I think the tried and true method is that like you say, there is information that an individual individual cannot possess unless he or she buys it, knows someone who can get access to it. And that's, that is like the, the, the defining factor between someone like me and someone who works on Wall Street because it's all about access of information, understanding really how the market works and that to me is the most interesting thing, right? I mean, we can, people can invest in meme stocks all the time. I think silver was a huge thing, AMC, and then back to GameStop a little bit. But the idea is that no matter what, the market is so large and there's so many different factors without mentioning, you know, even the political or economical like impacts, you know, mm -hmm. pandemic withstanding, of course, uh, that's the most interesting thing about it. And so I'm very glad to hear your take on it because it seems like no matter what, it is very important to kind of do your research and take the slower. I personally would have taken the slower road. I don't think investing in random stocks is, I mean, you hear about it all the time, right? But like you say, unless you can prove it, you know, it seems like very fun to listen to. I think I think that's what many people thrive off too, especially. Well, we, we all want to think that there's a means of 
getting rich quickly. Okay? Right. I understand that. Uh, I also understand the, the uh, unhappiness or of the fact that the rich are just getting richer, right? Because right. they they have air, they have the ability to invest in things that normal investors don't. I mean, like venture capital, like real estate, et cetera, because they don't have the means. Number one. Number two, they don't have the ability to leverage the way a rich person does, you know, take out loans. Um, I'm not a fan of that either. And I understand why you want to give it to the man or, you know, you want to be able to do as well as somebody who, you know, basically inherited their wealth or have has a lot of money. And he was able to make a lot more money after it. I, I, get, I get it. But that doesn't mean that you just throw your money down with understanding the consequences. If you want to speculate, that's fine. Right. Um, if you want to invest something completely different, that being said, risk taking is important or you're not going to make enough money in terms of return over time. So it has to be educated risk. You have to, again, you have to understand the downside as well as the potential upside. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I think, that's where I think going back to one of the first comments you made about how almost no one seems to be reading books or like physically depending on information. I mean, I'll have you know, this is kind of a weird fact, but this year I I started, it, when I say I start reading again, it sounds strange because it oh. implies that I've not been reading before, but the first, I guess, past couple of months, I've been actually, you know, using physical hard soft cover books and while that may seem very random and quite frankly strange that is kind of that's strange to me too because I always thought that you know ever since undergrad and going into consulting I found a lot of the information was digital a lot of the meetings is digital I mean people don't come in books right that we read them we talk to them converse argue strategize we do so many things with people and that to me is interesting because it seems like no matter what, we always have to depend on some sort of information. While a majority of the information may come through digital resources, it's also important to kind of pick up a book and physically read something. So going back to like the things that you were talking about, I feel like that's kind of important too, especially as we're seeing a lot of different shifts in the world. Um, but that to me, information is always flowing, right? I think that's the point I was trying to make, yeah. um, no matter how you look at it. Uh, my last question for you, Michelle, today for today's session is that going back to one of the thoughts that you expressed earlier about how nowadays not a lot of people seem to be using physical media, i.e. books, for example, like books or textbooks or anything for that matter. And fun fact is for this semester for my MBA college, I decided to get textbooks physical, you know, physical format instead mm -hmm. of the usual digital, which is what I did throughout undergrad. And I feel that for some reason, taking the physical textbooks is making it easier for me to retain the materials why a little bit that, more. Why do you think that is? I'm just curious. Um, I don't know. It's like the first time that I'm reading physical stuff in a while. Normally, it's mm -hmm. all the information that I was given throughout my consulting career was digital. And the people who I meet, they don't come in books, right? I mean, as much as I would love to, as easy as that would be, a lot of the times I found myself conversing and talking to them, strategizing with them face to face, which of course is great. You know, it's right, it's right. a great experience. 
But for physical textbooks, there's just something, I think what makes it different than digital is that I can physically have like the book in my hand, even if it's something like microeconomics, which is something that, you know, at any given time of the day, it may or may not pique my interest. I think it's something that, you know, really interests me about like, I'm physically reading through something. So like, for example, going back to your book, if I found, if I bought your book digitally versus getting a physical copy, I feel like for me, turning the pages, really absorbing the material. Maybe it's been a while since I've read a physical book. That's why I'm saying I, I'm acting as if I've discovered like the best thing since sliced bread. But I think for me, it's more, I remain in tune. I think it's a more like grounded kind of way of learning, especially because like in college, a lot of the times, you were talking about how even finance majors like will sometimes find the material very hard to digest. And it is great that we have, you know, professors. I'm very thankful to have had a professor like you. I think the class I took with you was a 7 p.m., 7 to 10 p.m. class. So that's like as. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was like late in the night. But still, I don't recall ever like I want to say like I don't think I ever fell asleep in any class, but I don't recall like feeling bored or anything. Because mm -hmm. the material and ultimately the professor is what makes the difference in the class. So going back to what you were asking, that's what makes it different. Reading dig something digitally is different than reading something physical, which is something I hope to experience when I read your book that comes out later. And Thank you. I, I, I can't wait until it is out in physical format as, as well. I think, I think that's true for anybody that wants to write, right? They want... Everybody wants to see them, their name on a book. I mean, That's true. A, lot, a lot of people do. Uh, so yeah, that'll be exciting when it happens. I think, I think I need to look at studies on this, but I think you retain more when it's a physical book. I know it's too easy for me to skim, to skim through anything that <laughs> that's online. Um I read Financial Times every day. I read Bloomberg every day. Maybe Wall Street Journal, not so much. Not so much New York Times, but a lot of research. And I know that if I want to retain it, and as I get older, by the way, because I do so much reading, I actually retain most of everything I read. Uh, but if I'm going to retain it, it's I, I have to have it in my hand. I have to be able to put a pen to it, even if it's just you know, randomly putting underlines, not necessarily writing uh, in the notes, but you just, re you remember a lot more. I think if it, you have the actual physical copy of the literature in, in your hand and plus it, it's, I think it, it involves more of your senses too. You know, you don't have that tactile, you know, response that you do with a book. And I think that's what most of us remember as, as kids is, you know, being read books, you know, turning the pages with our parents. Right, exactly, having, exactly. Having that, that interaction. I doubt if very many people, well, maybe they will go, oh, my mother had the iPad in front of me and I was I was 14 and it was so, right. was, <laughs> su such a big memory for me. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't think it's the same as sitting with a book per se. I think you do retain more. I think you spend more time with it if it is a book. I also know this. Uh, don't be, uh, we're on our computer so much and on screen so much. It's really hard to relax. It's really hard to uh, shut down for lack of better terms at the end of the day. And if I read a book, I can shut down. If I read online, 
or my iPad, which I love my iPad. I can't, I, I can't, I can't shut down. I'm going to, and I'm going to throw this in. Recently, I started painting again because I have, when I was younger, younger, back in the day, <laughs> uh, I was offered an art scholarship and I haven't done any art and, you know, since high school. And I kept thinking, I, I can't get myself to wind down. I'm just, I'm ingesting so much data every day of trying to make good investment decisions, be able to do something that's physical, whether it's a book, whether it's painting, whether it's, you know, playing an instrument, you know, whether it's, you know, interacting uh, with your animal or your child or a relative, having that physical contact, I think really allows us to go outside of ourselves and um, have something that's more meditative meditation or meditative for lack of better terms yeah no i i think that's that's another interesting take um definitely i agree with you completely physically and i'm sure i'll be interested to see if there is a study out there i'm sure there is that i'm gonna go go look for it i will tell you that since i started drawing and painting again um i do wind down more and i sleep better than if i just read online and I, I almost like to binge, right? I mean, whether it's Instagram or reading articles or YouTube or whatever, um, there's just too much out there. We, we're physical beings, um, even with a metaverse, that's always going to be the case. I don't think an experience on the metaverse is ever going to be the same as when you're actually somewhere in the mountains or at the seashore. I just don't think it's going to be the same because it's not going to involve all your, your, you may trick your brain, but only to a certain extent. Yeah, no, that's true. I think, um, and going back to what you were talking about, uh, uh, getting better sleep, we may not, we may be denying it, especially because I'm back in college again. And it's, I think one of the professors was talking about today about how, you know, academics, social life, uh, recruiting events, and then sleep. You got to pick three out of the four and more often or not, people are willing to forego sleep, myself included at certain times. But if we do have something that grounds us, such as a physical object or even painting or something, I'm not much of a painter. I'm just using your example. Um, But I think that's something that really will help us kind of, like I said, keep grounded and make us more aware, I think, of the surroundings around us, which is something that we don't. If in our completely busy lives, I don't sit and I think, oh, wow, look at this wonderful table I'm sitting on, you know, but or not sitting on a table. But the the point what I'm trying to say with that wonderful analogy is that it is important to keep grounded. And I think holding on to any physical means, any creative habits, especially like reading, writing, painting is very important. And um, and I think that's a very important for us to have, especially especially in the very fast paced thing called life. So um, I think yeah. you're going to have, I think you will have better enjoyment during your waking hours. And uh, I think you will sleep better and, and therefore you're going to think better. You're going to have be more creative. You're going to make, I think you'll make better decisions. Um, I know I do. If I'm, if I have a more balanced physical life, even working out, um, Exactly. Yeah. Keeping the mind right and the body right. Yeah. I mean, you just can't totally stay in your head and stay online. That is going to, it's going to be detrimental, not only physically, but, you know, emotionally and spiritually. 
Yeah, exactly. I think, um, especially, you know, mentioning exercising and maintaining a healthy diet, which is something that I think when we hear those things, we, to use what you said earlier, our eyes kind of glaze over like, yeah, okay, exercise, apples, oranges, you know, the whole spiel. But especially when we've been all locked in like a digital life, most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us, about 80, 90% of us had a completely virtual life during the pandemic. And I'm sure that a lot of people went through, you know, a lot of ups and downs and exercise may, for me, exercise was not the first thing on my mind. I was just like, oh, you know, I don't want to move. I just want to stay kind of in my virtual zone. But the more, uh, the more we kind of experience things for ourselves, going outside, smelling the flowers, which is a very odd thing to say. I think today, for example, I woke up and I was seeing the sunrise for the first time in a while. And I just, I was just like, that's a really nice sunrise. You know, that was, it's one of, it's one of these strange things that maybe I not focused on before, but now I'm like, okay, you know, there's something out there. There's something interesting to see. Something, um, but, uh, something beyond what I'm downloading or what's on my computer. Exactly. Exactly. And for the first time I hadn't gotten up to like, you know, do something right before class, which I'm sure a lot of my classmates can attest to, but um, being able to experience something like that in person is definitely you know, takes away from the virtual um, mm -hmm. aspect of our lives. But um, speaking kind of, that seems like a very nice and romantic way of ending the session, but okay. uh, as sons do. But um, thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast um, and experiencing this format. And um, I look forward to what, to what your book brings soon. Um, hopefully anybody out there who's interested in what it, what investment banking or anything that goes on in the financial world um, from this wonderful person's point of view, you guys should definitely go out and get the book and at the very least become interested in um, what uh, she does. And you currently work at your own firm. What is your firm called? My firm's name is Portia Capital Management. Um, I named it Porsche, uh, not like the car, but P O R T I A. After I need to, I need to explain that. Right. <laughs> uh, named after the heroine. I wanted a heroine from a Shakespearean play, and Portia was the heroine in *The Merchant of Venice*, and she has frequently uh, represented ethics and justice, and so that's important to me for for clients and investors because. A lot of times they don't get either of those things from um, the industry. So that's, that's, that's my hope uh, that uh, I can deliver that and more people um, who care about the client and ultimately their outcome can, can do this, can do the same, but thank you for having me today. Thank you for allowing me to mention my book. Uh, when I get close to publishing it, It'll, I will announce it on LinkedIn and I'll have the ability so that if somebody wants to order it, of course, I'll provide a link for that. Of course. Uh, but hopefully that'll be sooner versus later. Um, but thank you for having me on the show and uh, sharing my experience and uh, my, my opinions, which everybody has them in the industry. So it's just one set, one of, one of a lot, one of many. Right. Thank you very much, Michelle. Those are very kind words. And like I said, if you keep on the lookout, once the book goes on sale, I'm sure it'll be a very interesting read. And thank you again, Michelle, for taking the time today. 
And to all your viewers out there, thank you again for taking the time to peruse this episode. And um, I hope to I hope to record again soon and share more knowledge. Thank you very much and have a great rest of your day. Goodbye. Thank you.